So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the, the scripture is printed in your bulletin. Um, it's there. Let's see. It's there on page 6 with a place to take notes there on page 7. We're going to be reading Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And we're really looking at verses 44 to 47 today. So listen, this is God's word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. The book of Acts gives us these amazing pictures of the church. And we, from the beginning of the book of Acts, we saw, we had a little three-part series on what does the church do. And we saw from the, from the scriptures what the church was all about. Well, we're starting a new mini-series today called The Influence of the Church. You know, how does the church actually make a difference in the city? What is it about what we do that influences the folks who are in the church but then also outside the church? And so we're going to be talking about how today the church's influence is through its presence. Okay, the church influences the city through its presence. And so it does that primarily in our text through generosity. So we're going to be looking at generosity inward to the church, outward to the world, and upward to God. Generosity inward, outward, and upward. It's our presence as a community of generous people that makes a huge impact, not only on us as folks who are part of this church, but also on the city around us. We're going to see that today, and we're going to look at it really in three points, okay? We're going to see actions first, and then fears second. Finally, we're going to see hearts third. So actions, fears, and hearts. And what we're going to see is that when the church does this, it brings heaven to earth, okay? When the church is this way, you know, in terms of knowing, being, and doing. We're talking about being here. When the church is being this way, we bring heaven to earth. And so let's look first at actions. Actions. Through the actions of the church, they brought heaven to earth. Okay, they brought heaven to earth. This is verses 44 and 45. The text says that these folks who were part of the church, they were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their goods. They were selling their belongings, their possessions, and distributing to all as any had need. This is interesting, right? This is interesting. What this is telling us is that the way people thought about their stuff had fundamentally changed. Okay? They looked at their property, they looked at their goods and didn't think that they had the only claim on their things, okay? 
No one claimed exclusive right to their own property. When needs arose, these Christians readily liquidated their goods, their assets, to care for the needs of other believers. Okay, that's what the text is telling us. One author said this, their relationships with each other were so strong that they could not tolerate anyone in the church living with material need while others enjoyed relative prosperity. Okay, their relationships within the church were so strong that they couldn't tolerate anyone in the church living in material need when others enjoyed relative prosperity. And this is actually part of the picture of what fellowship is. Okay, we saw last week that there were four things that marked the church. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. The word fellowship, it means a lot. We talked about what it means to a great degree last week. It means friendship, but it's more than that. It's caring, transforming, supporting community. Right? It's community that makes a difference in your life. Underneath the definition of the word fellowship, it also includes financial support. To be in fellowship with someone means that you have a concern and a care for their financial well-being. Okay? You can see this in the book of Philippians. Paul uses this term. It's the same word in Greek. It's the same word. It's koinonia. You know, so a lot of, I think some of you, if you've been around the church you know, of any length of time, you've maybe heard that term. Koinonia is the word that's translated fellowship here in our passage. It's translated partnership in the book of Philippians because that term was used to describe the, the mutual financial support between Paul and the church in Philippi. They were contributing to his financial needs, and Paul said that was fellowship. That was fellowship. And so what they were doing in terms of this, they were selling their things and they were giving to those who had need. In a sense, what they were doing was just acting like a family. Okay, simply put, they were acting, well, maybe we need to, it's not that simple, right? Because, boy, I guess we have families that uh, sometimes that's not quite how it works, right? They were acting like God's family. Maybe we say it that way, right? These people were acting like God's family. It was a renewed family, okay? They didn't have a sense of this is mine and not yours, okay? They didn't have a sense of this belongs to me, that belongs to you, their mentality about their stuff was that it's ours. It's ours. Um, think about a refrigerator, okay? You know, in the refrigerator, you got food. Sometimes it's, and a lot of times it's prepared food. Um, when you are married with children... The way the, the way you think about the refrigerator is different, and the contents of the refrigerator is different than when you are single and living with other people. Right? Think about that. When I was in college, I spent some years with where there were six of us living in a two-bedroom apartment, because you know it's just what you do in college. Rent was two hundred bucks a month, you know, and so, and you know. One of us periodically would go to the store and buy food, right? Bring food in. You go, you spend food. You took the time to get the list together. You spent your own money, right? You bring, you put the food in, and that's yours, right? You, you, you took the time out, right? It's not, 
your fault that your roommates don't have food, right? It's not your, you, they didn't ask you to go for them. You might have even offered. They, oh, no, 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 it's okay. Because maybe they, they were a little bit short that month. They didn't have money, whatever. So you go to the store. You buy food. You put it in the refrigerator, and, and there it is. And, and you're excited because you've got food, right? Well, then a few days later, you know, maybe, well, a few days later, you go to the, you remember that, oh, you know what? I remember I bought some hamburger, you know, and I, I'm in the mood. And you go to the refrigerator, you open it up, and it's gone. It's gone, right? Who took it? You didn't eat it. Well, you got five other people you can blame. And there's this sense of, I mean, entitlement, right, when it comes to the food that you bought. I mean, that's just how we think, okay? The refrigerator is a great way for us to test our hearts in terms of how we think about our stuff, okay? And so now once you get married... If you haven't gotten to this point yet, let me just get you to this point now. Just don't think about that. Don't think about it. And then when you have kids, don't even, you know, it's, it's not even worth going there. Um, and that's right. It should be that way, right? My kids have no money, okay? They have no ability to get to the store because we won't let them walk. Um, they can't buy food. And so even if I put the rest of the dessert that was mine and chose, so... I'm going to do the godly thing. I'm not going to overindulge in this dessert. I'm going to save a portion of it so that I can have it the next day, right? That's what I'm going to do. And so I'm doing the godly thing. I'm honoring God with my body, honoring God with my food. I put this dessert in the refrigerator, you know, and then, and then, and then the next day comes and I go and it's gone. I mean, what am I going to do, right? I guess I could get mad. Um, but, I mean, that's just when, – when you have a family, you expect that. When you have a family – What's in the refrigerator is not mine and yours, it's ours, okay? And for us, we need to realize that this, this is mind-blowing. And, and I know that there are issues. As I'm talking about this, I know that some of you are already feeling like, yeah, but wait a minute. Yeah, 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 hold on, but wait, are you saying, are you, well, don't, don't worry, we're going to talk about the fears, okay? The fears of actually trying to make this happen. We're going to deal with that in our second point, okay? But so just see what the text says. As far as people were concerned, Everything that they had was in the family refrigerator. Okay? Everything that they had was in the family refrigerator. They saw that everything that they had was, they had it in common. They were selling their stuff and giving to the, the proceeds to those who had need. So for them, they thought, the things that I have, they belong to me. We'll talk about that in a minute, but... If there is a need that arises, I will sell what I have. I will divest myself of what I have to meet someone else's needs. They were acting like a family. And what's interesting here is that this wasn't a one-time thing. Even the Greek indicates that this was an ongoing thing that was happening. Okay? They were selling their possessions. Okay, it's not that they sold their possessions one time. They were selling their possessions. Okay, they were distributing the proceeds to all. That's an ongoing thing. Okay, so this was just part of the way that the church was. This was just the warp and woof and the character of this community that loved Jesus and loved each other. So let me just say what it wasn't. Okay, what this wasn't. This wasn't communal living. Okay, this wasn't a commune. They weren't selling the houses where they lived because verse 46 tells us they went on meeting in their houses. 
Okay? So it wasn't that somebody said, hey, wait a minute, you know what? There's that passage where Jesus said, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, and the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. Jesus was homeless, so all of us should be homeless. So let's all sell our houses and be part of a commune. That's not what was happening. Verse 46 is they were meeting daily in their homes. Okay? So this wasn't communal living where people were selling their homes. Or not, um, rather, what was going on, and scholars have, have studied the words, you know, belongings and possessions, and what this is talking about is these were, this was their, their extra stuff and their extra property that was being sold. As you study the culture of the time, a lot of people lived in the city, but they had farms that were on the outskirts of the city. Okay, and so and they would share crop with these things. Sometimes farmers would work the land, but oftentimes you'd have a trade that you would practice as your primary means of income, and then you would have a farm that you would rent out to sharecroppers. Jesus even talks about this in the parable of the vine dressers. Right? I mean, so we see that this is a reality, just part of the way that life worked back then. And what was happening was people were realizing, you know, I've got this extra investment property that's earning me extra money. I could sell that property and go without the extra investment money, without that extra income, in order to provide for the needs of people. Okay? And so it's not that they were selling the houses where they lived. They were selling extra, uh, extra assets to be able to provide for needs. Now, you have to understand, too, that for the Jews to do this, even Jewish Christians, this was remarkable because... Back in that, in, in that day and age, your property was your inheritance from God. Okay? If you read through the Old Testament, as Israel went into the land, they were so specific about how the land was going to be parceled out, who was going to get what, where your property was. And in fact, every year or every 50 years, they have a year of jubilee. So that if you came under economic distress and you had to sell your inheritance from God to someone else to be able to pay off a debt uh, or to meet a financial obligation, every 50 years, you got it back. You got it back. It was that important. God said, look, y'all are my people in my land. This is your inheritance, and it's me telling you that you have a future. And so for them to be selling this kind of land meant they had another kind of future. There was a faith involved in doing this. Not just a faith that, wow, how am I going to get by without this extra income, but a faith in, you know, God has something in store for me. It's not just this strip of real estate in the promised land. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The earth. And so even as the people were doing this, they were showing faith that, God's promise, his ultimate inheritance, wasn't in this life. It was in the life to come. So they also weren't selling themselves into poverty. Okay? They weren't selling, the, they weren't selling the things that would put them in a place where they would then have need. Okay? I mean, even in Jesus' ministry in Luke 11, you see that there were wealthy people that supported Jesus. There were homes where Jesus stayed. Um, where people who, I mean, Lydia, we'll, we'll meet Lydia later on in Acts, you know, who's a seller of purple. I mean, there were people who, who, had, who had significant means, who had houses. I mean, that's where the churches met, actually, initially. It was in the houses. And so you had to have houses. So people weren't selling themselves into poverty because that would make the problem worse. Okay? So they weren't doing that. This also wasn't communism. 
okay? A lot of people look at this and go, oh, communism, okay, communism is right. And uh, I'm not saying that the alternatives to communism are necessarily uh, perfect in every way, but this wasn't communism. So you can choose communism for other reasons, but not from this text of scripture, okay? Because they weren't being forced to sell their properties. They, and, and there wasn't a sense of that it's wrong to own private property for yourself, if you read Acts chapter 5, you see that the sin of Ananias and Sapphira wasn't that they were unwilling to sell the property. It was that they lied about how much they gave. And Peter says, look, it was yours. You didn't have to do this. Why would you come and lie about it? And so, again, this isn't communism. Um, one author said this. I thought this was really interesting. He said, in some way, mandatory commun- commun- communism or communalism would actually be a lot easier. You know, you wouldn't have to think. There'd be no decisions to be made. All the thinking would be done for you, and the leadership of the church would just try to enforce it. <laughs> you know, which, boy, that would, uh, might look kind of ugly, actually. Um, you know, for the average member, pure communal, uh, communalism would simplify the struggles of conscience over money and what it can buy. Um, they wouldn't have to answer the hard questions like, how much is enough? You know, how do I weigh my family's needs against the needs of others? Should I save prudently or give to the poor until there's no more to give? Right? These are questions that the scripture would put on all of us. We have to make those decisions for ourselves. There isn't a requirement that you have to do this. Luke, he, uh, this author goes on to say, Luke describes the people of God, though, as motivated by an inner compulsion of grateful love. I mean, that's what's driving them. That's what's driving them, not a set of rules that you have to do this. And Luke sums up, actually, in Acts chapter 4, verse 34, in this amazing way. He says this, there was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. When I think about this kind of giving, I mean, and we're going to do a series on giving uh, probably a little bit after Easter where we can talk about this more in depth. We can't cover everything in one sermon. But when, when I think about giving, I think about it in a couple of different ways. There is the normal tithing that happens to the needs of the church. Okay, and that pays for, you know, for rent for here. It pays for uh, office space. It pays for staff. It pays for... Um, what else, programs that, that need money to run within the church. You know, and your normal giving, your, you know, which, I mean, there, again, we'll talk about this more in detail. As I think about it, it seems like Scripture teaches throughout that, that the 10% number is, is the benchmark. It's where we want to aim, at least, for our normal giving. But then, above and beyond that, uh, that's money that supports the church in its work so that the church can go, so we can keep meeting here every week, week in and week out. And then beyond that, when there's need, it seems like what the scripture teaches is that we are to give according to the way that we've been blessed. Okay? And so those are the two ways to think about it. And I think what we're seeing here is that second kind of giving. Okay? It's that second kind where where the needs arise, the community, the family gets together and says, okay, how can we meet this need? Okay? And so that's... That's what we're aiming for. Now, what this was is kind of interesting. What this 
ended up looking like to the church and even to folks outside the church was utopia. Okay, this, what Luke describes here is it's almost, it's paradise. The phrase in verse 44, that they had all things in common, that is an illusion. It's, it's a quoting from the Hellenistic visions of a utopian society. So the Greeks, you know, the Greeks that were uh, you know, around at that time, they had these visions of what paradise was going to look like. And they described it in this way. One of the characteristics in the consistent visions of what the world could be like, the world that we all want, is that they had all things in common. And so what Luke is doing, he's sort of borrowing. He's saying, look, this is how our society, our culture envisions paradise. And it's coming true in the church. The world that everyone wants is coming true in the church. That makes me run in all kinds of directions because I think that's part of what we need to be doing. So this is just in the way that Luke tells the story, right? He is saying the church was living in a way where the folks outside the church were looking in and going, wow, that's the world that we want. When we think about what heaven might ever be like, or when we think about paradise, it looks like that. Luke was, I mean, so Luke said, okay, that's what you're looking. You know what? Let me tell you, this is what it was. And so you talk about, an incredible evangelistic tool, right? To be, the, to be the community that the world is longing for. I mean, that's, that's what the church is designed to be. God wants us to live in a way that makes the folks outside the church, the folks in our city look on and go, boy, my heart really yearns for that. I really want that. And it draws them in. It draws them in. There's this great um, document that was written by a guy named Lucian of Samosata uh, in A.D. 165. So it's about 100 years or so after Jesus. He said this on the passing of Peregrinus. He says this. He says, Then at length, Peregrinus was apprehended for becoming a Christian and thrown into prison. Okay, this guy Lucian is not a Christian. Okay, he actually mocks. If you read this whole thing, he mocks Christianity and talks about what a bunch of losers these people are who, uh, who buy into this philosophy. But this is what he says. He says, so he's writing about this guy, Peregrinus. He's apprehended for becoming a Christian, thrown into prison, which itself gave him no little reputation. So the word spread. When he had been imprisoned, the Christians, regarding the incident as a calamity, left nothing undone in the effort to rescue him. Then, as this was impossible, every other form of attention was shown him, not in any casual way, but with assiduity. I don't even know what that means. But with assiduity, diligence, you know, probably thoroughness. It's like assiduous. That's not helpful, Bill. (laughs) Can't use the word to define the word. Did you? Oh, diligence. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. So, with diligence. With diligence. And from the very break of day, aged widows and orphan children could be seen waiting near the prison while their officials even slept inside with him after bribing the guards. So Christian leaders would bribe the guards so they could go hang out with this guy in prison to encourage him, to show support, to identify with him. 
And then elaborate meals were brought in and sacred books of theirs were read aloud. Indeed, people came even from the cities in Asia, sent by the Christians at their common expense to succor and defend and encourage the hero. They show incredible speed whenever any such public action is taken, for in no time they lavish their all. So it was in the case of Peregrinus. Much money came to him from them by reason of his imprisonment. That's good. (laughs) That's really, really good. Now, it seems to me, let me just say that I see this happening here all the time. Okay, I get to see it because I'm more privy to things that go on a lot of time. But I mean, there is stuff that happens informally where people are helping each other out. And it's like this. Sometimes it's money, but sometimes it's just time spent. Sometimes it's sacrifice. Sometimes it's someone offering their services at no cost. I mean, this happens all the time informally. And then we even have a care team that handles needs like this. When people have a need, um, because of your gifts to the care fund, we have money to be able to help folks out when they have needs. So I see this. I mean, Generate Hope is another incredible example of this. Even just recently, we took a a drive um, to get furniture and all the things that we need and I mean, Susan, we were talking this week, and I was asking her, well, so what's going on you know, with that? And basically, we can say about the Generate Hope house, in terms of the contents of the house, and I'll just quote the Bible to you, uh, Acts, 3, Acts 4, 34, there was not a needy person among them. In the Generate Hope house, it is fully stocked with everything that they need for the women to come and to live. Hallelujah. 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 Um, It seems like every time something comes up, I mean, this happens, I mean, again, informally in community groups with just friendships, but then formerly with Generate Hope, with AIDS Walk, with, you know, Dining Out for Life, with our HIV and AIDS, you know, with with outreach to the homosexual community. I mean, we are constantly, we do a great job responding to needs when they come up in this second area, you know, as needs arise, y'all just do a great job. You really do. You provide for the needs of your own. Um, having said that, I guess there, there's, there's one thing I do want to mention, and uh, this makes me uncomfortable just because I'm not used to it. I've never taught about giving until today, but um, I do want to let you know that right now where we are hurting as a church is in terms of that first area of giving. Um, in terms of just the budget financially, in terms of keeping like rent and office space and staff, um, we're hurting. Like we're way, 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 way behind. Last year we were about 60000 behind, but we had savings to cover it. And we are in a place now where I just want to encourage you to prayerfully and sacrificially give not just to the needs when they arise. I think part of the problem is that we don't really mention the ongoing needs very often. And so maybe that's part of the reason why it falls off of our radar. But, um, but yeah, right now we are in as a church just to be able to keep things going as a church where we have a pretty significant need. And so, um, so I just, I, I felt like I should bring that up because, well, because it seems like every time the need has been put forth, y'all respond. And so, uh, um, so yeah, so I, I wanted to bring that up. So, so this, 
I mean, I guess I don't want us to lose the sight of the fact that what they were doing, the actions that they were taking, was bringing heaven on earth. It was creating this community of joy and togetherness and family. And you know what that's like, right? Because when you help someone out and you see the difference that it makes in their life, you feel the sense of, you know, by God's grace, I got to participate in that. Like, I got to share in that. And that's, I mean, that's what the kingdom of God is about. It's about all of us as a family supporting one another, like reweaving, uh, you know, our own church societal fabric, like having a fabric that no one falls through. So these were the actions that the church took. Our second point is the fears. The fears, and really our fears end up destroying paradise on earth, right? If, if the actions bring heaven on earth, our fears can have the, the effect of destroying heaven on earth. I got to be honest, as I was starting to read this passage, getting ready for this, my initial reaction was, you know, like, this seems like such a lofty vision, but I just, objections started coming up in my own mind, right? And maybe some of you are feeling this way too. You know, how much does this mean I have to give, right? Um, Am I just going to end up getting taken advantage of? Right? If I just keep giving and giving and giving, like how much? And, and what if the people that we give to, what if the needy among us take advantage of us? Right? How does that work? You know, and then if we have the ability, if we tell people, look, we're going to take care of our own as a family. And if you're committed to this church, you can know that you will be cared for. If we're going to say something like that or take this vision seriously, isn't that going to end up creating sort of a no-work welfare system in the church where we're going to have a lot of people that are just up on the dole? for the church you know, and then others of us might think you know it's just frankly it's not fair you know doesn't the bible teach if you don't work you shouldn't eat well then maybe the church ought to just reinforce that and if the needy are needy maybe they just need to get to work right i mean these are all objections that i've thought about that i've heard actually and it seems like there are really two things that motivate our fears okay and you might have other fears it seems like you can there's two things that motivate the fear that we have in terms of, of how this works. You know, one is wisdom and the other is selfishness, okay? We are motivated to be afraid of this sometimes wisely and sometimes selfishly, okay? In terms of wisdom, you know, the idea of, well, what are people going to do with the needy? Isn't the Bible's teaching more than just that we should give to people that have need? Isn't there a bigger picture? And the answer is yes, The answer is yes. We actually find out in Acts chapter 4 that the leadership of the church begins to sort of organize the distribution of funds. Um, And because I think the church recognized that it's it's appropriate for us to give a full-orbed answer when needs come. You know, sometimes needs come and the church says, you know what, yes, we can see how you have this need and we're going to meet this need financially um, by giving you a financial gift. There's other times where the church needs to say, you know what, there are things that we think you can do and ought to do before getting financial assistance from the church. Um, And so, you know, in Thessalonians, Paul makes it pretty clear that the support that was given in the church wasn't simply handouts. Because Paul does say, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Okay, so it's true that we want to make sure. And, and this isn't about being mean. It's not about trying to create a standard that we're hoping nobody will meet so we don't actually have to give any money out, right? I've felt that way at times. And I, just to be honest, like, well, if we just 
you know, say that you got to come up here. We know that they want, you know, and that's sin. I mean, that's, that's sin on my part. Um, but what Paul is doing when he says, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. He wants to make sure that any assistance that is offered by the church doesn't rob you of your God imageness. Okay, Paul is concerned first and foremost that you would understand who God is and that you would understand who you are. And part of being made in the image of God is that God has created all of us to work. He has given us the joyful responsibility of having an impact on his world. He has delegated his authority to us and called us to to actually work. It's not about, you know, and the problem is that with the fall, with sin, the work, our work is cursed. Okay, the work isn't the curse, but our work is cursed. And so it's a struggle. It's a challenge. It's difficult. It's boring. It's uninteresting sometimes. We don't often, we're not sometimes doing what we actually want to do. You know, so all of these things are part of the fact that work is cursed, but work is still part of the joyful gift of God to people made in his image. And so Paul is saying, the last thing that I want you to do is to be receiving so much financial support that you are being robbed of your ability to work or robbed of your opportunity to work. Does that make sense? Because what that does... Now look, there's always exceptions, okay? But I want to state the point clearly. You will never be happy if you're not working. If you are not being productive in some way, you're never, ever really going to be happy because God has made us all for work, for work. It seems as though looking at the lower end of the economic scale, the danger is that the church's generosity will destroy the desire to work. Okay, and that's, a, that's what we have to avoid. That's where this work piece comes in, right? That the church's generosity might destroy uh, the desire to work. But on the upper end of the economic scale, it seems like it's flipped. The danger is that our work will destroy our desire to be generous. Okay? Because, hey, I work hard. I got a job. If I lost my job, if I, yeah, I mean, I'd just get another job. And it's, you know, it's sometimes easier said than done, right? The, there's balance. Sometimes if you are on the upper end or if you're just employed, you can think, well, I got a job. Why can't they, right? And so it's our work that can cause us, you know, bring up the danger of us not being generous. Does that make sense? And so a church like ours, we have to hit both. Look, there's sin in being lazy, but there's also sin in being selfish, and, uh, and the gospel would call both of us to check our hearts, right? To, to examine our fears um, and, uh, and, and, and to move forward. And so, so wisdom does speak to this issue. And we need to create, and we do, we have created. I mean, the care team has a process that they go through that includes all kinds of things that help us understand what's the wisest way for us to respond to a request when it comes. Okay, so, so wisdom should check our fears, um, or sometimes wisdom produces our fears, but sometimes it's selfishness, and that's where we have to be careful. We have to be careful. We have to guard our hearts. Okay, so speaking of hearts, that brings us to our third point. Our hearts are really the key to reviving paradise on earth. 
revivals begin in the heart. Okay, and as our hearts, uh, as our hearts are under more and more, are more and more gripped by the gospel, we will be set free from our love for money. Okay, and usually that's what keeps us from being generous. It's our fear of losing what we like, right? It's our fear of losing a lifestyle that we like. It's our fear of getting involved in the messiness of someone else's situation. And as we do that, what we need is we, we need our hearts to be renewed. We need our hearts renewed. Um, and so let me give you another quote from, uh, from this guy, Samosata, about Peregrinus. This is what he says about the Christians. He says, these poor wretches have convinced themselves, first and foremost, that they're going to be immortal and live for all time, in consequence of which they despise death and even willingly give themselves into custody, most of them. Furthermore, their first lawgiver, that's Jesus, uh, persuaded them that they are all brothers and sisters of one another by denying the Greek gods and worshiping that crucified sophist himself and living under his laws. Therefore, they despise all things indiscriminately and consider them common property. And what's interesting there is that this author, who is not part of the church, has actually identified the heart of the church. What is it that made them do all those things for that guy in jail? They'd convince themselves that they're going to be immortal and live for all time. They'd convince themselves that death can't can't win over them. They'd convince themselves that they're all brothers of one another. I mean, he's saying they treated each other like a family. And that, I mean, that's what we need. You know, if you're not feeling there, if you're not there, if there's a gap between where you feel right now and this image of the church, part of what it is, is that you need to be reminded that we're a family. And here's what's interesting is that the rest of the passage teaches us that the answer, how do you get this? It's to worship as a family. This is verses 46 and 47. They were together daily in the temple. Daily then, they were together in fellowship in their homes and they were praising God. So they were worshiping together, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And what they were doing was they were reminding themselves, wait a minute, Jesus is Lord. He has changed everything about me. He has fundamentally, he has saved me from my sin. He saved me from my selfishness. He has saved me from all of the things that were binding me in darkness. He has set me free. And he set these other folks free too. And he has said, they're my brothers and sisters. They are my family. And as they thought about that, they realized what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that Jesus, though he was rich in heaven, for your sakes, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And they thought, you know what? If Jesus left heaven, came to earth, and emptied himself of everything up to and including his life, for me. Do I really need this stuff? Or is my brother or sister more important? 
I mean, that's where the gospel comes in and it changes us. That's where understanding what Jesus did and not just what he did, but what he did for you grips your heart and sets you on this path. And the result was they had favor and the Lord added to their number day by day. When this was going on, God looked down and said, yeah, that's it. That's the organization. That's the group of folks that I want to see grow and grow and grow and grow. If we are taking care of our own and can honestly say that, you know what, in our midst there is no need, that we're wisely handling the needs, sometimes with finances, sometimes with biblical counsel, sometimes with encouragement to reorient life, Right, so that someone can be uh, productive. If we're able to do that, God says, yeah, this is where I want people to join. And God will bring people to us. As we focus and love each other inwardly, God will add to us from the outside. And this is what was happening. They had, they had favor with all of the people. And what this tells me is that, I mean, this is serious I think this text is telling us that the salvation of San Diego rests in part on how we feel about each other and how we treat each other. I mean, this is paradise within our grasp because you know what that's like when you feel it. You know what it's like to be in a family where needs are cared for, where you see God at work and you don't feel like you have to hold on to everything, you know, because of what you might lose, where you feel free the freedom that comes with recognizing that, you know what, if I don't have this, that will be okay. If I lost my house, that would be okay. I mean, my rental house. If I, the landlords come and tell me how to move. If we have to move into an apartment, that's okay. You know, we can deal with that. God can provide. If we have to, I mean, it doesn't matter, really, when you think about it. If you have a community of people, that makes that possible. And as we practice that, we will experience that true, generating, that liberating freedom. I think that people may have been initially attracted by the money to this group of Christians that were providing for each other's needs financially. But once they got in, not everybody had financial needs. And my guess is even those who did have financial needs, once they got in, what was more attractive to them was living with people that just weren't enslaved to money to be around folks that really were that free. That would keep someone forever. Let's pray. Father, would you please take your word and push it deeply into our hearts. God, give us wisdom to be able to think about this. Thank you that your love for us casts out fear. It's your love for us that makes us know that you will care for us even if we decide that we need to do something sacrificial and it scares us. Thank you so much for the way that I have seen Harbor Downtown rise up and meet the needs that have been expressed to it, for the way that we care for each other. Continue that work, and Lord, continue to provide for your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.